Welcome to Photo Taco, the only show with photography tips you can learn in the time it takes to eat a taco. Or perhaps a burrito. Photo Taco! Hey everybody, welcome into another episode of Photo Taco on the Improved Photography Network. I'm your host, Jeff Harmon. Thanks for spending a few minutes of your day with me. Today's episode has had a last second change. I was going to talk about exposure lock today. And I'll get to that probably next week. But I decided today I wanted to change the topic because something's been covered by like every media remotely related to photography. Actually, anything remotely related to creative work, which means it's hit a lot of mainstream media as well. And I wanted to wait until I could get some more detailed specifications than were available, the day of the announcements. Uh, and, and watch kind of what people hands-on reviews had provided. But I've decided that I'm going to do it today and not wait for all of that. <laughs> and so today I'm going to talk about and share my thoughts on the late October 2016 hardware announcements from Microsoft and Apple. After you hear my thoughts on the topic, I'd love to hear the reactions from Photo Taco Nation through the post of this episode on the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photo taco through Instagram by messaging at photo taco podcast or the email address, which is photo taco podcast at gmail.com. All right. On October 26th, 2016, Microsoft may have out appled Apple with a windows 10 event where new hardware was not only the focus it managed to largely steal the news cycles away from an Apple event that came just two days later. It was really interesting to have both giants have press events so close together, both announcing new hardware and just begging to have all of us compare them in a way that has been done very rarely. Well, I'm, I mean, the products from the two companies get compared continuously, but I can't remember the last time they both announced new hardware through major press events in the same week, both having a focus on products for creative professionals. That just hasn't happened much. So it's kind of an interesting week. And let's start with Microsoft's announcements since it came first chronologically. In a pretty good departure from what Microsoft has become so well known for, from the very beginning of the event, it was clear that they were very focused on using their products to create. Microsoft started with an announcement that the next major update to Windows 10 will be called the Creators Update. It'll be available early in July, er, early in 2017, not July, early in 2017, and it will be free on every device. They spent time talking about creative software they're going to make available to do things like 3D editing and sound editing. But while some of you may be interested in those outlets for creativity, I'm sure you're not listening to Photo Taco to hear about anything but photography. So I won't spend time on that software. The reason I bring it up at all is that creativity was very clearly in the crosshairs of this Microsoft event. Now, you as a photographer were a major target of what Microsoft's been working on for a while, and the response I've seen on social media and blogs and heard on other photography podcasts I listen to is a growing sense that the tables have really turned. Many photographers feel like Microsoft's doing all they can to provide products for creative professionals, and Apple has inexplicably neglected or even dismissed the creative professional. I'll talk more about that in a moment. I do want to say one thing about software here, and it's going to be a bit of a rant, so buckle up. Okay, back in 2015, I wrote an article at improvephotography.com called Mac versus PC for Photographers. 
I wrote the article then and remain fully convinced today in late 2016 that either option is great. And the difference between the two really comes down to personal preference. I've heard a lot of photographers say how much they love Mac OS. It's easy, it's simple, it just works, and usually there's some kind of snarky comment about how it doesn't crash like Windows. Now I have to be completely honest and say Windows has a very well-deserved reputation for crashing. The blue screen of death is infamous and has been a pretty significant problem for a long, long time. But I have to tell you, not only has that problem been pretty fully addressed within the last couple of versions of Windows, the crashing problems really had a lot more to do with the crummy, crummy hardware people were buying with Windows than it had to do with Windows itself. Now, I'm, I'm not apologizing for Windows here. I'm not a Windows fanboy. I view the operating system as a tool, just like Lightroom is a tool and Photoshop is a tool and my camera is a tool. They're all tools that are required to help me create photos and achieve my artistic vision. Microsoft went through a very, very long phase in their history where they paid far more attention to the enterprise or business computing needs and didn't produce high quality consumer products. Again, back to my article in 2015, Mac versus PC, I outlined there, I simply couldn't recommend a Windows laptop for photo editing. This was primarily because my experience across many different brands over many years were nothing but negative. Between software crashes and hardware failures where the laptop literally fell apart, I finally spent what I consider to be an outrageous amount of money on a 13-inch MacBook Pro and was blown away by the difference in quality. It was an entirely different experience. But it wasn't because Mac OS was this world-changing thing that oozed quality and filled my life with rainbows and unicorns. It was a synergy between the hardware and the software. The hardware was just better built. And it integrated very beautifully with the software. They meshed together better than any Windows laptop I had ever used to that point. But I think that's changed. Microsoft is finally focused on building a better consumer product. A lot of photographers are going to take issue with this. But as tools, Windows and Mac OS are more similar than they are different. You use them to do the same thing. You, you run programs and you store files. Now, they go about those tasks a little bit differently. And you may prefer how one goes about the tasks over another. But Really, they're doing the same things, and there's only so much difference you can build into doing tasks that are the same. I didn't intend for this episode to turn into a Windows versus Mac OS discussion, so I'm going to move on here. My point is, you should use the software you're familiar with for as long as it makes sense for you, but don't be afraid to consider the alternative if at some point it stops making sense for you, because you can be extremely successful with either option and it's good to have options. All right, with that said, let me share my thoughts on the specifics about the hardware Microsoft announced. To start with, the hardware is pretty impressive. The Surface Book i7 is the second release in what I hope is gonna be a long-running Surface Book line from Microsoft of laptops. The first version of the product came out in 2015. It was really interesting and spec-wise seemed very compelling. 
but it was the first model. And therefore, my recommendation of the launch of the product was to wait. First model products tend to have problems that even the best of engineering processes can't account for. From problems that may arise in the manufacturing process when you have to produce thousands of them, to people using them in ways that engineers had never thought of. Going all in on a first generation model, not a good idea if you can't afford to have problems. And it turned out there was a pretty significant heat problem with the first generation Surface Book. Microsoft tried to resolve the issue through software numerous times, but while it improved, it never really got resolved. It was enough of an issue that Microsoft specifically talked about adding a second fan to their second generation Surface Book. I'm hopeful that because of the heat in the Gen 1, it was such a problem that the engineers figured out how to test for the problem and have fixed the problem in the second gen device. I think that's going to be good news. I'm also mostly impressed with the hardware in the second gen device. Microsoft claimed that pound for pound, the Surface Book is the most powerful laptop available. And from a purely photography perspective, I don't think that's true. I think the 2016 MacBook Pro is going to compete very well against the Surface Book i7, perhaps even beating it, because it is the graphics power where the two are drastically different. The Surface Book i7, while attached to the keyboard, has an NVIDIA GeForce GTX 965M 2GB GDDR5 memory. Yeah, like usual, names of these things are terrible, but what that means is it's a really good GPU in a laptop. So not to get too much into the MacBook Pro yet, because we're going to dive into that in just a moment, the 2016 13-inch MacBook Pro offers no option for more than the built-in graphics capabilities of this Intel Skylake CPUs, which isn't terrible by any means, but it won't be setting any records anytime soon. The highest-end 15-inch 2016 MacBook Pro has the latest, latest AMD graphics card, the Radeon Pro 460, also with two gigabytes of GDDR5 memory. Now, since both have two gigabytes of memory on the GPU, it may sound like the two are equivalent, but they aren't likely to be that close in performance. Microsoft claimed a 3X performance advantage over the MacBook Pro. That was two days before Apple formally announced their 2016 model, and I doubt Microsoft was making comparisons to the new one. They're both new GPUs, so we don't have Passmark or other hands-on testing to compare them just yet. But I expect the trend to continue with NVIDIA GPUs not only being technically more capable, but more importantly, better support from Adobe and other post-processing software makers. Therefore, I expect Microsoft to have a significant advantage in the graphics processor space with their Surface Book i7 over the 2016 MacBook Pro. But... A better GPU has yet to really show any advantage in using Lightroom and, for the most part, Photoshop. So, while that's an advantage that Microsoft may have, I don't expect that advantage to mean much to photographers. The last thing to mention about the Surface Book i7 is Microsoft claims 16 hours of video playback for battery life. Even if you only get like half of that, 8 hours is pretty nice. Now for the cost of this new performance laptop from Microsoft, the base model includes 256 gigabyte SSD, Skylake Core i7 CPU, and eight gigabytes of RAM for a whopping $2,400. Ouch, that's a lot of money for a laptop, especially one with eight gig of RAM and 256 
gig drive. That's a lot of money. I mean, for only $300 more, you can get twice the SSD, twice the RAM, and at least three times the GPU memory, if not performance, from my favorite system builder, PugetSystems.com. That would be a desktop, so really more than anything, it illustrates the dramatic cost difference you pay for using a laptop for photo editing. That's why I recommend you do most of your serious photo editing on a desktop because the price is so big for a laptop, but I digress. You can max out the configuration of a Surface Book i7 at one terabyte SSD, the same Skylake Core i7 CPU, and 16 gigabytes of RAM for $3,300. Now I'm confident that max out configuration will be a beautifully performing Windows laptop. Even though HP and Dell are now producing some really compelling laptops, I'm willing to go out on a limb here and say that this is likely the very best Windows laptop you can buy. I'm really excited that Microsoft's paying so much attention to building a high quality consumer product. It is something that they've needed to offer for a long, long time now, but there is no way I can justify spending that kind of money on a laptop for my hobbyist photography. I'm interested to hear from you listeners if as a professional photographer who uses Windows, spending $3,300 on a laptop makes good business sense for you because my gut feel is it doesn't. Now, I don't want to hear from you pros using Macs about how you would never spend money on a Microsoft or Windows laptop because I get you want a Mac and that we'll get there in a moment to talk about Mac and the updates there. But I'm really interested to know if the product at this price is something you pros who do use Windows could have make sense as a business expense. Now let's move on to what really is a much bigger announcement from Microsoft with their new Surface Studio all-in-one desktop computer. Again, very interesting in how Microsoft and Apple have become more similar than they are different. The Surface Studio is a very similar in appearance to the iMac product Apple has offered since 2007. Well, that's to say the current design of the iMac that came out in 2007. There were previous iMac models with an older design, but the design of that 2007 iMac has largely stayed the same over the past nine years, and the Microsoft Studio looks a whole lot like it. It has a super thin 28-inch screen attached to a small base where the guts of the computer live. And at the top of the show, I said Microsoft may have out-appled Apple I had to check myself as I watched the presentation that this wasn't an Apple event. They emphasized thinness. They emphasized the beauty of the product. They emphasized how capable it is of representing color, something they call true color. When, and you can move from like 10-bit DCI-P3 to sRGB color spaces with the touch of a button, kind of a neat feature. They deliberately chose a 3 by 2 aspect ratio instead of the more common 16 by 9 or 16 by 10 aspect ratio that many products, Windows products have had to better facilitate creative work. Made some deliberate decisions there. They replicate one inch on the screen to be one inch in real life with something they call true scale. Really help, helps the most in documents, but still, it's something they paid a lot of attention to. And they wanted to have the screen be what you focus on, having the hardware behind it sort of disappear or fade into the background. Doesn't all of that sound a whole lot like Apple product events? It was really, really similar to how an Apple product event goes. 
All right, so they're similar in nature. The iMac and this new Surface Studio look really similar, which means this could have been a Me Too kind of move from Microsoft, just to make sure they offered a competitor to iMac for creative professionals. And that would have been fine with me, actually, because if you wanted an iMac experience as a Windows user, you were really out of luck. Makers of all-in-one PCs like Asus and HP, they just hadn't really nailed it in the same way Apple had with the iMac. I have no qualms about saying the iMac offered the highest quality all-in-one computer experience prior to this new studio device from Microsoft. But the Surface Studio is not a Me Too product, meaning that they went beyond what the iMac is today. There are some very key differences. The first is touch. That huge 28-inch screen has multi-touch from edge to edge. Now, I have to say here, I am not sure multi-touch would mean a lot to me as I post-process my photos. I don't use it today, and I just don't know that it would be something that would prove really helpful in my post-processing workflow. But it has for some time now seemed super strange to me that Apple has not included multi-touch into their computers, especially when Apple has produced the products that really made touch work with their iPhone and iPad. Apple wasn't the first to put touch into devices, but previous implementations of touch by other manufacturers were so unresponsive and unimpressive, it made it extremely gimmicky and far from useful. But with iPhone and iPad, Apple produced products that where touch was so well implemented, it quickly became the preferred way to interact with those devices, and all the rest of the phone and tablet manufacturers on the planet had to scramble to mimic it. In the same way, I couldn't have imagined that touch would have become critical to my use of a smartphone. I have to imagine that the ability to use touch in my photo editing could become something that helps me focus on editing and less on how I do the edits at some point in the future. Time will tell. Microsoft's making a pretty big bet on touch being a serious differentiator with their computers, and we'll see if that bet pays off. A couple of other things Microsoft has with this product that's different from iMac. There is a zero gravity hinge that allows the device to go from an upright position like you think of normally with an all-in-one computer down to a lying position where the screen is up at a really small angle. You can actually rest your hands and arms on the device and use the pen to write or draw. They also introduced the Surface Dial, a little hardware device that looks like a hockey puck or a big mobile button. (laughs) You can use the dial to change colors as you're drawing or to navigate menus. Microsoft also demonstrated how to use their pen with the device, which isn't new or even unique as Apple has their pencil. But again, I have a hard time envisioning the ability to raise and lower the screen or this dial being super helpful to my post-processing workflow at this point. But again, I feel like I need to reserve the judgment to seeing where it goes with Lightroom and Photoshop. Maybe somewhat similar to how it is a photographer may move from using a mouse to a digital tablet like those from Wacom. There is a learning curve for sure, transitioning between something you know and use to something that works differently. But how many photographers have you heard where making the transition to a graphics tablet fundamentally changed their workflow for the better. Could these things be similar in that way? The new Surface Dial, for example. What is it you do with your non-dominant hand while you edit? Think about your workflow and what your hands are doing while you're doing your post-processing. 
If you're like me, you may occasionally use that hand to hit a key on the keyboard, but I'm betting most of the time you're using your dominant hand alone to do your photo editing. In the very well done videos that demonstrated creative people using the studio product, I took special notice of how they were able to use both hands as they were creating. I don't know if the dial will be something that really wins out and captures creative professionals, but I love to see Microsoft trying it and would bet a lot of money that if this device, the studio device, Surface Studio from Microsoft, if it had an Apple logo on it, photographers would form lines with money in hand to give Apple for the product. They'd be just raving about it. And even with Microsoft on it, there's still a fair amount of noise. But if Apple had done this, wow, look out. It would be a mad rush to try to buy it. It would be sold out instantly. Now, speaking of outrageous amounts of money, the base model Surface Studio comes with a one terabyte rapid hybrid hard drive that would be really similar in function to the Apple Fusion drives. It has a Skylake Intel Core i5 CPU, eight gig of RAM, and a two gigabyte NVIDIA GeForce GTX 965M GPU. Oh, those product names are terrible. Now, I'm not terribly excited about the hybrid drive. I really wish it had two drives with one being pure SSD and the other spinning disk and that I could manually kind of determine what I wanted where. But actually none of these specs are jaw dropping, especially when you consider the price for that base model is a ginormous $3,000. You can max out the setup of the studio with a two terabyte hybrid drive, the same Skylake Intel Core i7 CPU, 32 gigabytes of RAM and a four gigabyte GPU for an astounding $4,200. Again, ouch. Now that is nearly $1,000 more than a similarly equipped maxed out iMac. And you can see Microsoft has out appled Apple with their Surface Studio product, charging way more money than I think it's actually worth. I'm really excited to see Microsoft working so hard to create professional equipment. But to me, these costs are outrageous and there's no way I would consider backing a wheelbarrow of money up to a Microsoft store to get one of these. No matter how good the touch, dial, pen, and display is on the studio, it just isn't worth spending $4,200 on something that will be obsoleted in a year. Hopefully Microsoft will continue working on these pro product lines and be able to bring those costs down dramatically over the next couple of years because I'd really love to try them out as a daily driver for my photo editing workflow. Not just remotely in the realm of making financial sense for me personally. Again, you listeners out there who use Windows, I'd love to know what you think about the cost specifically and if it can make sense for you as a business owner. So that pretty well covers my thoughts on the Microsoft hardware. Now let's flip to the other side of the coin here. I mean, a lot of coin and talk about the new 2016 MacBook Pro computers from Apple. Before I do, I want to thank the Improved Photography Retreat as the sponsor of this episode. Most of the hosts from the podcasts on the Improved Photography Network are getting together in March 2017 in Phoenix, Arizona to do a photography retreat sort of like a conference, but we hope it'll be a lot more fun. As I record this episode in early November 2016, there are less than 20 tickets remaining. So if you'd like to meet up with me, Jim, Nick, Erica, Connor, and others to do a little shooting and a little learning, head over to improvephotographyretreat.com 
and buy your tickets today. All right, the MacBook Pro. It's been rumored for several years now that the workhorse computer many a photographer has used for post-processing was going to be updated. I've seen it on those prediction websites that kind of tell you whether or not you should buy something now or say wait because it's going to be updated. It's been saying wait for a really long time because it's about to get updated. And then, yeah, it gets kind of a minor refresh. The last meaningful update was all the way back in 2012, actually. Incremental releases, updating the CPU from Intel Ivy Bridge to Intel Haswell to Intel Broadwell. They came along with improved GPU capabilities in those processors, but it's really only been about small, minor incremental improvements. Not insignificant to photographers because the CPU is really important component of making Lightroom and Photoshop run well, but not changing so much that many photographers have been waiting since eh, 2012, maybe 2013 or 2014 for a reason to upgrade, a reason to invest in a new computer. And maybe they're even feeling like, boy, it's really time. This thing is getting old and and I really need some some more hardware. But uh, they kind of waited for that next compelling reason to upgrade. So the question was if the 2016 update was gonna provide that compelling feature, Unfortunately, I think the answer is no. I don't think that compelling feature was offered. That's not to say you wouldn't see huge benefits to upgrading to the 2016 model, especially if you're still toting around a 2012 model. The performance differences between them are really significant. Even between the 2015 updates to the 2016 updates, the performance improvements may very well make a lot of sense for people to upgrade if if that fits into the finances of your business. But with the models only getting small CPU and graphics bumps every year, I think the creative world world was really hoping Apple was working on something really big over the past four years to finally give them something truly compelling. What they got was a new OLED touch panel that takes the place of the function keys at the top of the keyboard. Apple calls it the touch bar. My initial reaction to that feature matches the reaction I've seen from many creative professionals. It's a, huh? In four years' time, this is the compelling feature you've been working on? We get a touch panel at the top of the keyboard? Yeah, this was a dramatic contrast between the Microsoft event two days prior and what Apple unveiled during their event. As overpriced as I think the Microsoft products are, and as unsure as I am that the Microsoft products will truly have a positive impact on my workflow, at least they had something different and new to show. Something where they're taking risks and thinking differently. The update to the MacBook Pro in 2016 has more to do with what isn't there than what is. I think it's a large part due to Apple painting themselves into a corner. If you asked to, if I asked you to think of the one thing Apple has significantly focused on for the past five to 10 years, what would it be? I mean, think about it. What is it that has been a recurring theme, update after update? I think the company has an obsession with one specific design principle that's led to a lot of success, but now hampers their ability to innovate. I think that they have overly obsessed about thinness, an obsession that is now killing them. Update after update to all their products, they focused so much on thinness. Every product update has to be thinner and lighter, which means the design team isn't truly free to do everything they'd like to do unless they can also get thinner and lighter. 
It seems to be especially visible in the 2016 update to the MacBook Pro and has led the very group of people who is stuck by Apple for many years to now feel like they're being ignored or dismissed. Now let's talk about what besides the touch bar was actually updated in the 2016 MacBook Pro. You move on from Broadwell slash Haswell generation of Intel CPUs to the now 12 month old Skylake CPU models. I wish they'd skipped Skylake and gone straight to Kaby Lake processors, but the Microsoft products also use Skylake CPU models. So you'd have to go with another manufacturer like Dell or HP to get a newer CPU. And really the advantages, eh, they may not be all that significant. You get a faster SSD drive, like a lot faster, which honestly is very compelling because drive speed I've tested out to be a major component to the performance of Lightroom in particular, but also Photoshop. I already talked about the modest increase in the GPU to the latest AMD Radeon, which as I mentioned, has proven really not to be a critical piece of the performance puzzle for most post-processing software today. Now, like the 2015 models, the most RAM you can pack into a 2016 MacBook Pro is 16 gigabytes. This is another place where creative professionals are screaming that they're not being cared for by Apple. They wanted at least 32 gigabytes of RAM as an option, if not 64, and Apple didn't increase that limitation at all. I read reports that Apple exec Phil Schiller has explained the reason for this having to do with battery life, and that makes a lot of sense to me. I said previously that if battery life in a laptop is important to you, don't go with anything over 16 gigabytes, and you may want to consider just eight gigabytes. I don't really know if it's possible, but I would love to see a computer maker add a feature where RAM can be turned off when running on battery and then turned back on after plugging the laptop in. Now, if you're photo editing, you need the RAM, so it wouldn't matter. But if you were just doing email on Facebook, you don't need all that RAM to be powered up, and I'd rather have the increased battery life. Anyway, as it turns out, there's actually a regulatory restriction that helps explain why it is many laptops don't offer more than 16 gigabytes of RAM. You'll notice Microsoft Surface Book maxed out at 16 gigabytes of RAM. So in the United States, the Federal Aviation Administration has capped the maximum allowable size of laptop batteries, well, batteries overall, on flights to 100 watt hours. So that's the limitation of how much power a battery can have on a flight. Good thing given the recent troubles with the Samsung smartphones, right? Those things burning, that, that it's a good idea. It's a good thing to have the power in these things limited. But according to Ben Slaney, I'm not sure if that's how you say his name, over at macdaddy.io, the 2015 MacBook Pro very purposely had a battery capable of storing 99.5 watt hours. And this creates a ceiling then on what Apple can do with that power. They can't just add more battery or they will fall out of compliance with that regulation. So they have to put in every energy saving component they can so they can maximize battery life. And it turns out that Intel only supports 16 gigabytes of something called low power RAM. So they simply couldn't go any higher because of that. It's Intel's support or lack of support for anything bigger than 16 gigabytes that kind of limits what Apple could do given the battery restrictions. Now they could have made a choice to use desktop RAM in order to offer 32 or even 64 gigabytes of RAM. That would have significantly impacted the battery life. And that's a trade-off some other computer makers have decided to do so they can offer bigger amounts of RAM and they, offer, they also offer significantly less battery life. 
So I give Apple a pass on the 16 gigabyte RAM question. They went as high as Intel supports with the low power RAM, and I personally would opt for longer battery life over more RAM. Just another reason, I think you should consider doing the bulk of your photo editing on a desktop computer and not a laptop computer. The reasons mount up considerably. Another huge criticism of the 2016 MacBook Pro is the loss of a dedicated SD card slot. This is one I think photographers are hit harder by than other creative pros, but like I mentioned earlier, the 2016 MacBook Pro update seems to have more to do with what is not there rather than what is there, and I just don't really understand why they felt it was the right time to eliminate the SD card slot that's been built right into the laptop since at least 2012. If it was something only being used by photographers, yeah, you might be able to justify the position Apple has taken here, knowing that the SD card format in flash memory is yeah, maybe kind of on relatively shaky ground as other flash format types with much faster speeds are becoming more and more popular. But really, they haven't included a CF flashcard format in the side of the MacBook either, and there are still a huge number of photographers using that card format. So I, I just can't see how the use or, or the relative popularity of a card format had much of an impact. And it isn't just photographers who are impacted by Apple deciding to ditch the SD card slot. They've also eliminated the really great third-party flash products that fit into the slot and were pretty close to like completely flush with a laptop body so that you could uh, leave an SD card in there kind of semi-permanently and expand the storage available to you, kind of overcoming that SSD limitation on how small the SSD drives are. But now all of that's gone. And there are many creative professionals who've said that having that SD card slot is a really, really big deal to them. So they once again feel left out. They feel like Apple just isn't caring about their needs and what it is they want and what it is they use the product for. Is this a pro laptop or not? And I'm not sure how to help Apple justify this one, but at least they didn't call it courageous. All right, finally, let's talk about the ports on the 2016 MacBook Pro. Gone are all of the, quote, normal USB ports in favor of four USB-style Thunderbolt 3 ports. Now, I think Apple got this one right. Well, okay, mostly right. I would have liked to seen at least one USB 3.0 port just to eliminate the need for a dongle while we transition from the USB ports you know and have peripherals for today to the new USB-C style ports. A year from now, maybe two years from now, I don't think this is going to matter much because we'll have everything converted over by then. But until then, it's going to feel really expensive and painful to have to remember the dongles that you'll need to make the 2016 MacBook work with the stuff you already have. Still, Thunderbolt 3 has such significant performance advantages, I can't wait to see the external storage products in particular that will come out now, now that PC and Mac are both putting in Thunderbolt 3 USB-C style ports. We should have some seriously fast and cheap external storage options that will help dramatic, dramatically with the challenge of a small SSD inside a laptop. All right, this episode's gone on too far already, so let's quickly cover the costs of the new 2016 MacBook Pro. The low-end 13-inch model with an Intel Skylake Core i5 CPU, 8 gigabytes of RAM, 
and a super fast 256 gigabyte PCIe SSD Intel graphics and two USB Thunderbolt 3 ports will run you just $1,500. And I think it would be a really good option for on-the-go photo editing. I use a 13-inch MacBook, and while it's not ideal, it's far from that with how little and tiny that screen is, it does a pretty nice job. I even it's it's an eight gigabytes of RAM model that I've got, and I really really like it. It's it's impressive, and it does what I need while I'm on the go because I know when I get home I'm gonna have my custom built Windows PC that is much better suited for doing photo editing. It does miss out on the new Touch Bar feature, and maybe I'm not giving that feature the benefit of the doubt like I am the new unproven Microsoft features but I just don't see the same potential for a positive impact to my post-processing workflow from the touch bar. So I personally think I can live without it. You can max out a 2016 15-inch MacBook Pro with Skylake Core i7 CPU, a massive two terabyte PCIe SSD hard drive, Radeon Pro 460 with four gigabytes of memory and 16 gigabytes of RAM, for a massive $4,300. No doubt a really good computer for photo editing, but like the Microsoft products, to me there is no way it makes sense to spend that kind of money on a post-processing computer. So what would I do right now for a post-processing computer? Well, I'd stay my course with a custom-built Windows desktop. You can have one built for you by Puget Systems, like I already mentioned, at a much more reasonable price, coming in at something like $2,700, and that would be super powerful, as powerful as anything we've talked about in this episode. Or, that being still a lot of money to spend on a computer for me, I would take note of the components Puget Systems uses in their computers, and I'd build it myself to save some money and get the total cost under $2,000. I get that approach isn't right for everyone. In fact, that approach is probably not right for most of you listening to this podcast. Most of you need a company you can go to if and when there are problems. A warranty, customer support. So you'll need to buy a computer from Apple, Microsoft, Dell, HP, or the like. For help with that, take a look at my Windows Photo Editing Super Guide over at improvephotography.com and look out for a new article coming soon where I'll focus on the new options from Mac, from Apple. All right, that's it for this episode. I hope that you found the information valuable and I'd love to have some feedback on how you think this fits into your own business. If it makes sense for you to spend the kind of money these products cost, it seems insane to me, but I'd like to hear if it fits into your business model and makes sense for, from a financial perspective to, uh, to invest so heavily in these products. Don't forget to check out the other podcasts on the Improved Photography Network. We have Portrait Sessions, Tripod, and, of course, the Improved Photography Podcast. Also, take some time to head over to the mothership at improvephotography.com. There are brand new articles every single day talking about news and gear and other photo tip articles. It is the best way to improve your photography. Views expressed on this program by independent host guests and callers do not necessarily reflect their views of Improved Photography LLC or its advertisers. Some links mentioned on this program are affiliate links where a permission is earned. Olay!